Amen. Please be seated. If you'll turn in your Bibles with me to Malachi chapter 3. And so if, if you're not sure where that is, go to Matthew and turn back a page. It's the last book of the Old Testament. Um, but today, this weekend, this coming Christmas weekend, uh, we're going to take some time to, do, to meditate on Advent. Uh, after Christmas, after New Year's, when we're back, I want to, the month before our new baby arrives, I want to, we're going to spend some time thinking about the Holy Spirit. And really, as we, we took time to meditate on the, the Ten Commandments, right, the, the gift of the Holy Spirit is that we are actually want to and, and are empowered to, to keep those commandments. So I want to try and connect the dots as we think about being spiritual according to Jesus. But this morning, we're talking about Advent. And Advent does something really helpful. It, it shines a light on our need for the light of the world to come down into our darkness. And so as um, Fleming Rutledge reminds Christians really well, and this was actually the Christmas after 9-11, where she writes, Advent is, says this world is full of darkness, and it was into such a world as this, not a fairyland, that the Son of God came. That the Christmas is the hope, the reality that that the light meets us here in our darkness, in our particularly human struggles and aches and pains. So we're going to start with Malachi 3. Uh, Let's let's read verses 13, and we're going to read down to verse 6 of chapter 4. This is God's word. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? Well, you have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. And this is God's word. He has spoken to us today in love. Let's let's pray. Our Father and our God, I ask that you would prepare our hearts to hear the good news of Christmas, that you, our creator, came down to dwell with us in Christ. So heal our sorrows, heal our, our sins, heal our Uh, self-righteous hearts as we meditate on Jesus today. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, 
So earlier this year, uh, the Anglican priest Tish Warren wrote a piece in the New York Times and it was called, America has a scorn problem. And part of her thesis, right? She was referring to a scientific report that in Americans in particular, this is a human problem, but not just American, but Americans in particular increasingly hold a basic abhorrence for their opponents. It's an othering in which a group conceives of its rivals as completely and wholly alien in every way. Right? And so she goes on to say that we not only just disagree with them, we find each other repugnant, right? Not just wrong, but you're bad. And so if you, you change your mind and and switch switch sides, so to speak, right? It's that's that's as bad as going to the dark side. Right? You're joining Emperor Palpatine. Right? In other words, what what she's saying is, is we as human beings are really good in our own minds and according to our own standards, uh, dividing human beings into two categories, the righteous and the wicked, um, right? There are the good guys, me and my team, and the bad guys, those who I think are intellectually challenged and never the twain do they meet. Right? And I know I read those kind of articles and say, yeah, people out there, they're so judgmental. <laughs> Right, but we have this is our testimony as Christians. We we are also really good at judge, judging the judgmental people. Right? I mean, how many how quick are we to turn up the heat and make that distinction between the righteous and wicked in just ordinary everyday life? Right? Something as simple as where do you squeeze the toothpaste tube? Right? The, the truly righteous squeeze from the bottom. You know, the, the dark side squeezes from the middle. <laughs> I'm not picking on Bethany in case you're wondering. <laughs> All right, but you can you can just fill in the categories. There's political righteousness, there's parenting righteousness, there's shopping cart righteousness, right? The wicked don't put their cart back. And in those moments, right? It's not every day, it's not all day, but we have moments where we go, yeah, I'm righteous, they're wicked. I have a scorn problem, right? Which is really, I'm a, a morally superior person problem. And so when you, when you read Malachi, all right, we're picking up a long conversation because this is the last book in the Old Testament. But God says something frightening and fantastic that he is going to make a very clear and obvious distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Right, he said that's what he says at the end of here of, of chapter three. And then once more you will see the distinction. Right? That there's a day coming when it'll be clear who the arrogant are, and it'll be and, and then the believers, right? The, the the contrast is they're gonna be healed. Uh, they're gonna be helped by the son of righteousness, they're gonna find healing. They're going to celebrate and rejoice. So what I want to do this morning is meditate on that, that verse. That what, is, what does it take for God to make that distinction between the righteous and wicked? Because that's what Advent is about. It's about the way God does that in Jesus. So let's ask that question. Uh, who are the righteous and who are the wicked? And why is it so hard to tell the difference at times? Uh, so point number one is who are the good guys? Because right, part of the trouble in Malachi, in this particular text, 
is God's people are saying is we just can't tell the difference of who, who has God blessed because there are people going through the motions and they're suffering. There are people that are doing the right thing, right? They're, they're trying to keep God's commandments. And, it, and then there are people who just don't care and their life is really comfortable. And so they look blessed, right? So it's hard to tell who is right and who is wrong which helps make sense of the imagery, right? Why does God in, in chapter four, verse two, say the son of righteousness will rise? Uh, it's, it's an image saying that, yeah, right now it's dark. Right? if the sun is gonna rise, it is now nighttime, right? And so that's that's sums up the Christmas season of Advent, that, that what we're doing is waiting for Christmas in the dark, right? This, this, this is what Advent tells us, right? In Isaiah 9, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. And then it goes on to say, as we heard, for us a child is born, to us a son is given. Right? But they're waiting in darkness. They're having a difficulty, according to Malachi, seeing the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Right? And so... Old Testament, Genesis begins, right, with let there be light. But what Malachi is saying, humans see but don't see. Without the Lord and his presence and his light, there's deep darkness. Right? And, and this is absolutely true of the way we relate to each other and the way we uh, label people as good and bad and uh, according to our standards, the way we make a distinction between the righteous and wicked, right? So think of the the, the famous teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, right? where, where Jesus says in Matthew 7, do not judge. Do not judge lest you be judged, right? And that's probably, if, if, if our neighbors know anything about the Bible, they know that verse, right? Don't judge me. But it goes on to say, right, that because with Jesus says, because with the judgment that you use, that you pronounced, that's the judgment that you will be judged with. And we don't like that part. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And what Jesus is saying is the standards that we use, that we hold everyone else up to, how would you handle it if those same standards were applied to you? Right? And the reality is, I don't even live up to my own standards. Right? And then Jesus goes on to say, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but miss the log in your own eye? Right? Which is a really funny portrait of a person who is so completely unaware of themselves, they don't notice a tree sticking out of their eyes. Right? And so Jesus is saying, Human beings, you don't have the ability to make a righteous judgment. If you can't, if you aren't aware of your own faults to this, the extent of a log in your own eye, how are you going to have uh, fair judgment about the speck in someone else's eye? Right? Doesn't say we, we don't need discernment. That's all. That's a different conversation. Right? But he's he's saying like, what's wrong with human beings is we're, we're blind to our own faults. Right. And so let's, let's keep building on this idea, right? We're, we struggle to make the distinction between righteous and wicked, even in, in ourselves. But can, 
keep building on this. Who, who is righteous and wicked? Can you see in the dark? Right? Can you tell in the dark? Right? If we're waiting on the sun of righteousness to rise in Malachi, right? In the darkness, who are you most aware of? Right? Especially thick darkness, right? Like the kind of darkness where you can't see your hands in front of your face. Right? I mean, if it was, if we had that thick darkness and the windows were shut and we were all like in a dark, deep cave and said, all right, I want everyone to stand up and switch seats across the room. The only time you're really aware of someone else is when you collide. <laughs> but every, every other moment, it's, it's, it's every man or woman for himself or herself. Right. So the idea is how, how do we make a right and fair and just distinction between the righteous and wicked if I'm only thinking about myself? And if I'm only thinking about myself and I have logs in my eyes that I'm not aware of, well, that makes human beings uh, a lousy judge. I'm not qualified for that job. No one is. And so Malachi says to Israel, a day is coming when there's going to be a bright, obvious, clear distinction between those who are on God's side and those who are not, between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who don't, between those who have the light of God's presence and those who are still stuck in darkness. Now let's let's look at the context because this will this will be helpful. Why why does Israel need this word from Malachi? Right, because in Malachi, if you've never read this book, right, it's it takes place after the exile. Israel's come home after being stuck in Babylon, and Malachi is just a whole series of dialogues and discussions between God. And, and Israel through the prophet, right? That, um, so like the, the, the book starts off, right? Israel, I have loved you. And then the question is, well, how have you loved us? And so Malachi responds with, well, he chose uh, Jacob, not Esau, right? And so when you get to chapter three, we're in, a, in, the, in the context, what God is doing excuse me right he's saying israel i want you to take me seriously keep my commandments as i've been faithful to you be faithful to me as i've been faithful to you and in chapter three he uses the example of the tithes to say here's here's a sign of your faithfulness will you actually tithe right he says in in three nine return to me and i will return to you bring the full tithe into the storehouse so there be maybe food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down a blessing until there is no more need. No more need. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight. Right, so here's, here's what he's saying. Right, show me, I want you to test my willingness to be for you. Keep my commandments. One example, tithes. You're saying you don't want to, but I'm saying you should want to. Just put me to the test. Try. Because if you do, then the nations will see that you're blessed. Then the nations will see God's light. You'll be a land of delight. 
But in our text, here's what the skeptics are saying. Yeah, it's pointless. Why bother? It is vain to serve God. What's, what's the profit in keeping his charge? Why keep his commandments? Right, why bother walking in mourning before the Lord of hosts? Right, and so here's, here's their point, or their, their, their lament or complaint. Uh, it's saying, why bother keeping God's commandments? What, is it, what am I getting out of it by trying to be righteous? Right, I've, I've tried to be good. I've tried keeping the commandments. And my life still stinks. Israel's back home after the exile. It's still hard. Right? Feels like there's no payoff, no profit. Right? And in Israel's case, they're still politically weak. Um, they, they, the, the complaint comes from a perspective of a, a mercenary faith, right? Where they're, they're saying, God, I want you to pay me to be faithful. And right now I'm not getting my cut, so I don't know why I want to be righteous. And, and the idea of, of mourning, right, in 3.14, you know what they're saying? We've tried being good. We've also tried confessing. We've tried, uh, we've tried the sacrificial system. Right? We, we are grieved. We've tried being grieved over the evil among God's people by just putting on sackcloth and ashes, being sorrowful, being mournful. And so really what they're saying is, why bother being righteous? We've tried being good. That hasn't paid off. We've tried confessing. That hasn't paid off. And so their worship services are pretty much like going through a, a, a funeral ritual for someone they don't know or don't care about. Right? They're just going through the motions. They have no desire. And then they look around and say, well, look at all those other people. They don't care about God. Right, we call the arrogant blessed. They do whatever they want and they get away with it. And if God is just and he's weak, it, it seems like he's weak because he's not doing anything. Right? The evil prosper. They look more blessed than we do. Right? Perhaps God is all bark and no bite, threatening justice but doing nothing. This complicates the distinction between the righteous and wicked even more. When God's people are questioning the point of going to church, the point of their whole existence. Right? They're, they're, the relig when the religious are just going through the motions, they're saying their piety has no payoff. Haven't you felt that way at some point? Right? Even as a Christian, right? I'm, I'm trying to do the right thing, but my life is still a struggle. My non-Christian neighbors don't care about righteousness. They don't think about what Jesus thinks about what I do. And yet they get away with whatever they're doing, seemingly without consequence. What am I getting from God? Where's the prophet? Right. And that word prophet in Malachi is the same. It's being used in the same way uh, as a gang coming to your place of business and saying, where's my cut? Right. Give me what is mine. A lot more complicated in the dark to determine who is righteous, who is wicked, when the line between righteousness and wickedness runs through every person. Because in our text, anyway, it seems like the religious are blinded by the logs in their eyes, 
or they're, they can use religion for completely self-serving purposes, right? And the irreligious, well, they're just out for profit for their own. They just don't think about God. And so the question is this morning, right? What's going to heal that kind of darkness in our life to where we want to be righteous? <laughs> where, where we uh, want to be those who serve God and do so from the heart. Right. And so that's that's where we move to our second point where, yeah, it's hard to tell who the good guys are. And yet in Malachi, what it does is uh, God promises that a good day is coming for for those who belong to God. Right. So if you look at verse 16 and 17. Of chapter three. Right. There's a, a change in tone. Right? It's not that there's no Christians, or I should say, this is this Old Testament. It's not like there's no believers of those who actually care about what God thinks. Right? It says, it pauses and says, then those who feared the Lord, which is an Old Testament way of saying, then those who trusted God spoke with one another. And the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed the name esteemed his name, right? And so what Malachi is saying is there are those who care about God. That's what it means to esteem esteem the Lord's name. It's to see God as valuable, to care what he thinks. Uh, there, there are a small group of people, at least in Malachi, who can't imagine life without the Lord, who believe the promises of God who are, are still trying to do the right thing, even if they don't see the payoff. Right. And so commentator Walt Kaiser talks about God's name and he says, God's name comprises his person, his qualities, his doctrine, his ethics, his moral standards. These are the things that the believers judge to be their highest and most prized possessions. They're esteeming God's name. If you asked any of these God-fearers what they judged to be their wealth, their property, or greatest asset, they would have pointed to the name of God and everything that stands for. So if you were to ask, what is the profit of believing to those who fear the Lord's name? They would say, well, the treasure is the Lord and all of his benefits. Right? That's the blessing they're after. And so the challenge for the righteous right? Is that so much of our faith is lived in this context, right? So Malachi, you've got those going through the motions. You've got those that look religious and don't care. You've got those who aren't religious and don't give a rip about any of this stuff. And then there are those who are the faithful. And it feels like nobody notices. You know, you're, you're doing the right thing, trusting the Lord to the audience of one, your heavenly father. And the life of that faith is lived, even though it feels ordinary, right? It says it happens with a book of remembrance open. It's a great image that God sees, God hears, he pays attention. He's, he sees your heart, right? And then comes the, the promise that it's going to get better, uh, Right? He says, these faithful, those who fear the Lord, they shall be mine in verse 17. And you go, when? 
On the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. That there's a day coming when God is going to make clear who his treasured possession is. Right? And so there's two massive gospel promises here I want you to see. First is the idea of being a treasured possession. Um, the treasure possession is, is a hyperlink going all the way back to Exodus chapter 19, back when Israel knew who they belonged to, when they could see the distinction between the righteous and wicked, uh, when God saved them from slavery in Egypt. And when in Exodus 19, God said to Israel, they're getting ready to come in. They said, if you obey me, I will make you my treasure possession. If you obey. Right? You, you are God's choice, right? He's already shown that, but you will be his treasure, his wealth. You will be treasured. And in Exodus 19, if you obey. But here in Malachi, there is no if, right? Malachi is saying there's a day coming when the if connected to being God's treasure possession will be removed. Right? You will be God's treasure possession, and you will know it. And then second, he says, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. And so here's, this is describing God's, God's people. And then the word spare, right, that has to do with pity or mercy, kindness to someone who's, who's struggling or in, in a hard place. And so it's saying, God is saying, I'm going to have mercy on my people. Right, so what does it mean to be righteous according to this promise? Uh, it's gonna know you're gonna know that you're not righteous because you, you're gonna know you need mercy. Right? God has to spare me from his judgment. And then he goes on to say, How is he gonna spare them? And look, meditate on the look at the metaphor. The way a man spares his son who serves him. And I know I don't normally think about sparing my children, right? That's not modern parenting uh, language. But the the word, it's, it's trying to show the connection that spare and spare. It's the same word in Hebrew, and then the word has multiple meanings here. But it's the idea that God will spare them, take them for his own, show them mercy, how the way, in the same way a father responds to a son who serves him faithfully. Right. So on the day when God claims us, uh, you're going to find out, yeah, it's mercy. It's a gift. He's going to claim those who aren't more righteous than the skeptic or the hypocrite or the doubter. He's going to heal our arrogance. Right. We're, the, the definition of being a Christian is one who has been spared. Spared from God's righteous judgment. That's that's here. Describing those whom God will treasure. But also the way he's going to show mercy is to treat them the way a father enjoys and responds to a son who serves him. And, you know, what, what made me, what this passage made me think of was the way Isaac, Isaac, back in Genesis, saw his son Esau. And Esau was a hunter and his father loved good meat. 
right? And Esau was the beloved son. And what Esau wanted to do, or what Isaac wanted to do for Esau was to give him all the blessings. He treated Esau as a beloved child, a favorite child, because he served him, right? So part of what Malachi seems to be implying here is the day is coming when God is going to treasure his people and treat them as obedient, beloved children. It's, it's the gospel in seed form. And so when you get to verse 18, then on that day, once more, you will see the distinction between the righteous and wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve God. Right? It's one day in the future, you're finally going to be able to tell the righteous and wicked apart when God claims you, claims his own. Right? But to get there, you have to get through judgment, and that's chapter 4. Right, Because he says, behold, the day is coming when the Lord, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming that will set them ablaze, so it will leave them neither root nor branch. And you, the faithful, shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day I act. We don't like to talk about other people that way. But the idea is, in a world where it feels like everyone's getting away with everything, right? In this past week, you read the news, Russia's been bombing on purpose uh, the electric of, of the civilians in Ukraine in winter, right? And that story is just one of a, a, a lot of injustice that has happened in this world, right? And so what Malachi is promising is saying, you who feel weak, who feel powerless, who feel unseen, uh, know that a day is coming when you not only will you see evil defeated, you will see Genesis 3.15 finally accomplished when the head of evil will be crushed by the promised king and son, and you, the, the righteous will join in the victory, right? And so the promise of Advent is God is just and fair, and he will judge by what his eyes see. He will make that distinction between the righteous and wicked. But in this fallen world, it's good news. Because if you've ever been trampled on, if you live in an experience where you're saying, yeah, this is not fair, I'm doing the right thing, and I'm getting burned for it, you need the hope of the coming judgment to trust yourself to the one who judges justly. Right? And so a day of judgment is coming, a day of reversal is coming for those who say are questioning the value of, of being faithful when life stinks. Right? And so here's the hope of Advent. And we'll we'll bring this to a close here. It, the day is coming when the, the sun itself is going to rise. And you know how the sun works. It can be either warm and comforting, or it can be this massive, burning, terrifying fire. And for the faithful, what Malachi is saying, the long winter of suffering for the righteous is going to come to an end. And they will know that they belong to God. And when they know that, they will go out rejoicing like calves, finally being led out to pasture after being cooped up all winter. A good day is coming for the faithful. So, who are the righteous and the wicked? It's an important question.
to know who's going to be standing after God's judgment. So let's connect the dots to Christmas here. All right, turn to Luke chapter 1. Verse 76. You know, this is how Zechariah describes Jesus's coming at Christmas. And talking about, uh, Zechariah is talking about John the Baptist when he says, and you child, in verse 76, he says, and you child will be called the prophet of the most high for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Do you hear what Jesus is called? He is the sunrise from on high, the light itself coming to show off the tender mercy of our God. So what Luke is doing is saying, look, right? Connecting the dots. What was promised in Malachi, that the son of righteousness would rise with healing in his wings, the son himself right, has come down to give hope, to shine his light on those who, who feel like everything is just dark and gloomy. Right? And so if Luke is saying Jesus fulfills Malachi, that means the coming of Jesus is going to make a clear distinction between who is righteous and who is wicked, who serves God and who's, who doesn't, right? And at the same time, right, what Jesus is coming as a sunrise, he has to show us mercy so we can stand in judgment because we can't, we're not going to be able to handle it. He's also going to make us his treasured possession by removing the if you obey clause of the old covenant and treat us as if we are obedient children, as those who serve a father, right? And so if you look at Jesus, who shows us the tender mercy, how did Jesus live out a righteous life? How did Jesus look at people who were less righteous than he is, right? And this is concrete, right? Jesus has the, <laughs> Jesus alone has the, the right judgment. Right? If Jesus was to be judged by his own standards, he alone would be passed the test. I don't know, one of my favorite stories is the way Jesus finds Matthew, the tax collector. He goes to a man who's hated by his people, who makes money by taking taxes from his own people to give to the foreign oppressor. Right? And Jesus says, you're mine. Come and be mine. And Levi's response to this mercy was to throw a party, a great feast, and invited all these groups of tax collectors and sinners. These are the people Matthew and Levi hung out with, of people who are very clearly wicked. Right? And the, the people watching are offended. Saying, How can you eat with these people? How can you befriend these people? They're, they're not righteous. And Jesus' response, as you see his compassion and mercy in action, is he doesn't see his own rightness as an excuse to condemn or to treat others with scorn or contempt. He, he says those who are well 
have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. In other words, Jesus looks at the arrogant, looks at those who are actively rebelling, the sinner, the wicked, with the eyes of compassion that a doctor has for the sick to show them mercy. Mercy, not scorn. Care, not contempt. Right. See, the, that's the, the character of righteousness in action. God's righteousness when it's combined with tender mercy. And the, of course, the shock of Jesus being the sunrise on high, right, as this obedient son who's living out all of God's commandments, right, the shock, of course, of, is that that is the person that God puts to death on the cross for sinners, right? It shows us how God makes us his treasured possession by removing the if we obey clause because we can't obey. No, we're treasured. So treasured that Christ himself died for us while we were yet sinners. We receive mercy uh, because Jesus alone is the one who served his father faithfully and perfect. But now by faith, if you rest in Christ, right? You are treated as if you are righteous in God's sight. It's given to everyone who believe. Which means I can't look down in contempt on anyone who is less righteous than me. Because the very heart of the Christian faith is, Lord, have mercy on me. <laughs> I'm a sinner. Right? And so when the, the son of righteousness dies in the darkness and rises again in the morning of the third day, right? And he rises with healing in his wings. You can't not rejoice when you realize what Jesus is bringing and accomplishing for you. Because righteousness feels like a, a restrictive category, <laughs> right? And what this is saying is, no, if you really understand what Jesus has done, you're going to celebrate like a, like a calf who's been cooped up all winter. You're going to feel free. Because one, you're going to know finally you're treasured. And you're treasured not because of anything you've done, but solely because of what Jesus has done. Right? And you're going to rejoice at the mercy that you found. I mean, I love the image of, of the way uh, C.S. Lewis describes it in Narnia. Right? When, when the curse is broken, when Aslan comes, when he lands, the reality of it always being winter and never Christmas, right? it changes. And the snow starts to melt, which sounds really great after this weekend, right? And what do all the Narnians do, even though evil is still there? They just start celebrating. They start rejoicing. And they start dancing. Even though the, the, the evil queen still exists and they still have struggles. Right? No, they experience joy because the mercy, the sunrise himself, came. Right? And so, as we conclude here, how does this change uh, the, the, this distinction between the righteous and wicked? You know, the, the righteous now, according to Malachi and according to Jesus, are those who, who have faith in Christ or are connected to him. They are those who serve God, those who are connected to Christ. Those, who are, those are the, the ones who are treasured. 
those are the ones that God receives as righteous. Right? I mean, those are the ones who, who say, how can I not love Jesus? Because when I was unworthy, he counted me worthy. And when I des- deserve judgment, he gave me mercy. When I was a slave to sin and death, he gave, me, gave himself up so that I might have life and righteousness. Now the, see, for the Christian, uh, what, what Christmas does, what Advent helps us with, is make that very clear, obvious distinction between the righteous and wicked. It's no longer me and those people out there who are not like me. It's now Jesus and everyone else. <laughs> and if you want to be righteous, you got to be with Jesus. Right? It's now Jesus, uh, because of his resurrection, who was raised for our justification, that makes us righteous. So, I mean, that, that's only partial fulfillment of this promise, of course. It's pointing ahead to Jesus' second coming when he'll finally clear up the muddled mess that we find ourselves in, where you can actually see and everyone will be righteous as, as we will be as Jesus is, as John says. But right now, this is what we've got. You are God's treasured possession, says Peter, and there is no if, if you have faith. Right? There is no if you obey. It's through faith, by grace, you are saved. And as the righteous, as Jesus' treasured possession, we now get to show mercy when we interact with the wicked. What that looks like, I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's for us to talk about in your particular circumstances. But we do know that Jesus says, um, go now and learn what it means that I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And we know that he says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall show mercy. And only those who've received mercy are those who want to extend that kindness to others, even if they don't deserve it. Because you can rest in the hope of Advent. That distinction between who belongs to Jesus and judgment, well, that'll happen when Jesus returns. And you, can, you get to trust God while you wait. That he will, there's a whole lot of injustice that will have to be righted when Jesus returns. But if you know you're treasured in the meantime, well, it's going to feel like the sunrise from on a high has visited you. Let's pray. Now, Father, there's a lot here, and we, we struggle to respond to the call of the gospel to be merciful at times. So we thank you for this great gift that we are your treasured possession as the church, that we are loved, that we are wanted, that we are remembered, that we are seen in Christ to the point of his death on the cross for us. We've received mercy. And so I pray for your spirit to pour out that mercy into our hearts so that that you would train us and teach us to show mercy to those who have, have hurt us. Uh, mercy to the wicked, so that maybe in your providence, we ask that you would lead those who receive mercy to see Jesus in us. That is our hope. And so we ask for your grace to continue to be at work in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.